I feel like that's one mission where I don't want to see a custom board specially made for it. Welcome to episode 31 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Dave Barker. Hello. And Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at NarrativeWarGamer. You can also contact us via email at NarrativeWarGamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon for only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon and gain access to our patrons-only group chats. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and and goes towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. So, um, good evening guys, it's good to have you both back. Absolutely, good to be back, good to be on there. Uh, podcast with both of you again. Yeah, we, we missed you last week, Dave. Yeah, it's just timing didn't work for me, I'm afraid. I, uh, <laughs> I had uh, my, uh, as I'm getting older, my children are getting older, and my um, 16-year-old's just started a new job at a famous fast food franchise, but it meant I had to be available to get her from work. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't available to record. Yeah, I, I missed having a, a fellow book park uh, book partner. I felt like I was just busy um, talking at Dan for most of the episode while he reacted. Yeah. But that's our modus operandi, right? We talk at Dan and he reacts. <laughs> Pretty much, so it was fine. So, last episode we talked about um, the Book of Fire, and tonight we're going to be talking about the like accompanying crusade mission pack so that is from amidst the amidst amidst the ashes um so this is actually now the third crusade mission pack isn't it for ninth edition yeah i think so yeah and prior nexus and plague purge um so yeah that's that's going to be our main topic which we're going to jump into shortly um otherwise before that um, we don't have any sort of major announcements tonight, really, just more fun narrative content that we're going to talk about, and um, we've got a games played section where me and Dan both got to try out the brand new Hot Codex, so Yay! we you with our interesting game <laughs> that we both played. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's pretty much what we've got to look forward to tonight, so it should be um, comparatively, a, a sort of a nice little episode just to fill us out till our second edition of 40k fun facts next time, I believe. Oh, sounds like a 
he really enjoyed doing the quiz mastering on the last one. Oh, I did. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you caught it in the last episode or not, Dave, but I've mentioned to Dan that there will indeed be a second return of the name game round. Yes, yeah. I think that we, we both had very mixed results on that, didn't we? Yes. <laughs> yes. That, that thought is keeping me up at night. The, the, the name the name game round, or can Tony find the same random name generator that Games Workshop themselves use? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah. It was fun. I really enjoyed doing it. Um, you guys both seem to really enjoy being involved in it, and it's been picked yeah, up good. Um, as a, a good episode for the downloads. People seem to have been enjoying it and tuning in, so I'm looking forward to doing it again. Um, awesome. But yeah, so we will jump across now to um, our games played, and then after that we'll be taking a deep dive into Amidst the Ashes. So we'll be back in a second, guys. And we're back, guys. So, the new Orc Codex is out, as it were, kind of. Kind of. Maybe, <laughs> in a couple of months. It exists. It exists. It's and In my hands. Yeah, and in mine also. Like, fortunately, me and Dan were fortunate enough to get hold of copies of the new Orc Codex. So, we decided that we were going to get together and play a game, didn't we? Yeah, just just to clarify, by fortunate for me, you mean I got up early enough to to go to the store before I opened. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have a, like a local game store that had some copies that hadn't sold, just because like they yeah. they're, they're, well, they're a games workshop stockist, but their main deal really is like Magic the Gathering and Pokemon. Right. So they don't have a huge games workshop clientele. Not enough yep. to have sold out of a you know a, a race specific limited edition army release. Yeah. Whereas I tried to get online at um, what was it about? Uh, well, I tried to get online at ten. I didn't get onto the store till eight minutes past ten. At which point they'd all gone. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. On on the upside though to uh, that by comparison is that the Kill Team Octarius release seems to have been a, a massive improvement over that situation. Yeah. Yes. I mean, in that case, I was um, like online and waiting at 10 a.m. and within half an hour, I'd been able to get on and order a copy, and I even got the uh, the exclusive metal combat gauge thing for being there early enough. Nice. But I also know that in addition to the weekend promise they made of everybody eventually getting a copy, I believe it's still available online right now to go oh. pre-order a copy of. Like it isn't yes, sort of yes, yes. Yeah, I wonder if that's um, because they made that announcement. People decided they didn't need it as urgently, and therefore it's not as uh, as in demand. The, the, um, there are lots of reasons why Games Workshop may choose to make these these business decisions, and if we choose to approach it in the wrong way, we could get into <laughs> a negative discussion about Games Workshop. We've always tried to avoid them. <laughs> And um, I think, uh, yeah, availability or not of games, certainly the the old codex should be available for everybody within the next month or six weeks. So that's I think that's been the major annoyance uh, for those mm. of us that have not been able to oh, get it. I, I yeah. don't need the new Mork models. I do need the codex so I can play with the ones I've already got. 
See, I'm kind of funnily enough in the other boat. I actually mostly need the models that have yet to be released. I'd have kind <laughs> of been fine um, without the book if need be. I mean, I could invite Dad around and play a game with him and he's got a copy. Yep. <laughs> you know, in, in this particular instance. But um, in either case, we, we he did come around and we played a yep. game. Of, we um, had a game. Orcs v. Orcs. Yep. Uh, so I was running Snake Bites. Uh, with a, a fair chunk of infantry, uh, I took a couple of units of, of the sort of elite orcs that I haven't really fielded much in in Eighth Edition. Uh, I had a, a unit of fifteen commandos and a unit of ten burner boys, um, and I had a battle wagon and a squigoth, the the um, regular squigoth, not the gargantuan squigoth. Okay. Whose rules got, are in the I got the wrong idea one. in my head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not not the huge, huge Forge World one. The uh, the relative baby squig of Forge yes. World, despite the fact it yeah. is you know bigger than a battle wagon. Still, yeah, it's it's still eighteen wounds of toughness eight chonk. And um, uh, I brought death skulls, so I was pretty much the other end of the scale where I bought lots of you know toys before boys really, and I had. Yeah. aircraft and buggies and a gawk and horse and all kinds of orky mechanical wonders you still had a fair few boys though yeah I mean I, yeah I still rocked up with 60 boys because it's just yeah. the core of an orc army <laughs> um, yeah. but I tell you what orc boys are surprisingly tough now I mean well, the... I get that it was versus orcs so it wasn't <laughs> like they were getting a, you know a lot of shooting at them but in that first turn you did pull the like burner boy trick where you know you rock up with your vehicle slash squig up in this case and yep. just declare you're hitting me with 15 d6 shots or whatever uh, or however many it was it was eight eight d6 eight d6 uh, fine. maybe not two of them had two of them had to be spanners um ah yes as per the new requisite but i did but roll still... a ridiculous number of hits yeah, and I have to say that in any sort of eighth edition or you know eighth edition codex or academy, if I knew a unit of orc boys been hit by effectively eight flamers, I would mm. expect them to be removed. I would not yes. expect that unit of twenty orcs to be there afterwards. And instead, I think you only took out what like was it about eleven of twenty? Something like that. It was just over half, and yeah. then I chipped a few more off with shooters. Uh, but the unit survived the turn, didn't it? Yeah, because I think I think after morale and everything, I still had seven orcs standing. Which, yeah, as a you know a seven man infantry unit that's toughness five in cover, <laughs> by yeah. most army standards, that's still a pretty resilient objective. Holder. Yeah, yeah. The the extra toughness does make a big difference. Um, it's not going to suddenly make it so that a block of orc boys can stand in the middle of the board against you know like a full gun line and just not die. Because they will die, but they'll die a lot slower, um, and that means the, the rest of your stuff will survive it a bit better. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you've sort of already mentioned that this is a big benefit for is I think the specialist boys units. Absolutely. So things like the burner boys, the commandos, the um, even looters and like storm boys and stuff. Yeah. It makes those specialist units feel a little more worthwhile taking because. Yeah, the school still going to have a natural attrition rate by virtue of being a six-up save unit. But 
that toughness five suddenly means that your unit of ten burners or whatever isn't just going to get wiped out. It's going to get reduced to maybe you know four or five models or three or four. But then that's still three or four burners, which are going to do a lot to most enemy units. Yeah, it makes them uh, a lot tougher against the sort of incidental firepower that used to be a big problem for those like expensive, but with the same stats as a boy units. Yeah, and I, I think it's almost it's almost like the daka daka mentality applied to boys boys. <laughs> where you're putting out that many like you're putting out that many shots slash bodies that only like a third of them are actually gonna make it to being effective at doing the damage. But that's yeah. all you need because the third that is getting there is still hitting relatively hard. Yes. As opposed and to just, those... this unit either hits you and wrecks you but then gets wrecked in return because it's surprisingly glass hammery you know to say it's a, yeah. a 30 man unit of toughness four orcs in days past yeah the um the minus one on the chopper is a big help as well to, yeah and i'm interested meant i've got see. a few more wounds full through on that morkenort or yeah, gorkenort rather speaking of which I mean... that gorkenort did some work <laughs> i mean it did yeah it did that thing has also surprisingly benefited from like the new variety of Daka Daka and just putting down a ton of shots. I mean, and being in a speed war. Yeah, I was about to mention that. So obviously, not only did we have quite diversely different army lists, we also had the different approaches to the war. So I was using a Death Killer War Tracker, you were using a War Boss, mm -hmm. and for our two respective lists, the speed war was so good for me. No, so the wow was so good for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it felt odd calling the speedwire in turn one because I'm, I'm gonna because I've got that many buggies and aircraft and everything that engagement yeah. isn't really an issue, especially when you went first and you moved towards me. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna. <laughs> yeah, you were gonna, of course you were. <laughs> um, but I think. The two big standouts for benefiting from the speed war in particular are just big shooters and super shooters. Yeah. Which I mean, I think maybe it's if you if you know your orc stuff, then maybe that is a little sort of obvious, but at the same time, I don't think it's obvious just how much of a benefit it actually makes them. Yeah. I, mean, I think big shooters as a whole are actually one of the low key like real upgrades in the book. Going to regularly being five shots per big shooter when a lot of vehicles in particular are often equipped with like four big shooters. Yeah, it's made me rethink rethink my battle wagons having no guns. Yeah, I mean, it's made me rethink or look even more forward to getting the boss head bunker that's hmm. not only got its funds of like, you know, laser eye weaponry, but also is just sporting like four big shooters. Yeah. Um, I mean, just dropping strength five shots into marines is going to do work, and especially for two turns of the game, they're also AP minus one. Yeah, that AP makes a big difference when you've got lots of shots. Yeah, and it makes me want to try out the Daka Jet so much. Ugh, yeah. I mean, the strength six AP minus two super shooters 
because when they're firing in the speed bar, were so good against so many targets, even if they only wounded your snake by orcs on falls. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they were so good, and I took a burner bomber and a was bomb, which both respectively just have two super shooters. That's it. And yeah, the Daka jet has six of them. <laughs> And is the perfect candidate for the custom job where he can potentially get an extra two shots per shooter. Yeah. So, yeah, I just really loved it. and But then, equally, your war boss and your boys just loved rocking up with advance and charge and extra attack for two rounds, didn't they? Yeah, the extra attack's quite, quite good when you've got a massive mob of boys. Um, and obviously, advance and charge is, is pretty vital. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Yeah, so uh, sort of mini orc update aside. Yes, so I, I guess the people want to know how the game went. Uh, it went very quickly in terms of like game turns and kind of what went down because <laughs> we, so we, as we were mostly just interested in trying out the armies, we didn't want to do a massively overly complicated scenario, so we just rocked up when played open war, didn't we? Yep. It's like, um, throw down an objective card, throw down a deployment card, and then we'll chuck in um, a, a battle zone and from my dwarf. And that was our mission. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the mission was largely irrelevant because it basically just boiled down to a big fight in the middle, didn't it? <laughs> As would somewhat become the case with two orc armies anyway, but yep. yeah, it was like... Um, long table-edge deployments with a like, slight arrowhead. Um, and we had three objectives each in our deployment zones. And we scored a point for holding our own and two points for holding an enemy objective. Yep. But then, while that was going to devolve into a large melee in the middle with these 120-odd orc boys plus accompanying squigs and vehicles, um, we decided to play with the uh, Dry River Valley battle zone. Um, the one where you attempt to break the dam and have a flood come <laughs> crashing through the battlefield. Yes. And uh, Right down yeah, the middle. Right down the middle. <laughs> and just before the dam, um, which burst on turn three, I believe it was, mm-hmm. Yep. Um, there were various characters and vehicles in the centre on one or few wounds. <laughs> yes, it was quite dramatic. Yeah, um, I think in the end, I think it did pip the last damage off the Gorknor and my Death Killer or yes. something. But if you hadn't have done, they were going to die to be washed away by the flood anyway. Yeah. yeah. So they kind of were in a, uh, a a bit of a kamikaze scenario because they had been <laughs> too damaged to escape the oncoming floodwaters. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was fun because. My mega knobs were actually in the strategic outflank, busy smashing up the dam before their inevitable r- arrival, which didn't end up happening because of uh, the fact that we ran out of time. We didn't get to the point of getting them on the table as we theory hammered out the last turn or two, yeah, and forgetting about them. <laughs> yeah, so I think I th- I think we initially decided on a draw, and then we were like, oh wait, there's some mega knobs. <laughs> yeah, because we. We had stragglers and objectives being contested and units yeah. on each other's side of the board and stuff. And it honestly was a really close game. And so much so that given the fact we ran out of time, we decided to call it a draw. 
like that was our foregone conclusion that we couldn't really see a way one of us was going to pull ahead um, until we looked over and saw some mega knobs yeah but we were like eh, we have packed up now and it was fun but we don't care <laughs> Uh, we can't remember whether or not that would have made a big difference or not. Well, I think you'll find that it doesn't matter who won or lost because Orcs is never beaten. <laughs> exactly. Although, I will also say I forgot one other thing. Not that it made a difference in terms of how the game would have played out, but as is always the case when you play the new codex for the first time, especially when it's got some new mechanics in it, you will forget some rules. Yep. Do you remember that my Death Killer War track at one point was engaged with a unit of... A whole load of stuff. Uh, 30, a whole load of stuff. 30 boys, yep. uh, Nob with our banner, uh, Pain Boss, and the Battle yep. Wagon. Yep. For, I think, around two rounds of combat, more or less, if not three rounds of combat yep. over two turns. You gave it the Shocker Hull, didn't you? I gave it the Shocker Hull. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. And totally forgot about it. And every cool. single time any one of those units would have attacked him, they'd have had a 50% chance of taking D3 mortal wounds. Yeah, that would have been really good. <laughs> it would have been. Oh, well. I completely forgot he had it until after the fact. And I was like, oh, uh, damn. That would have been brilliant. <laughs> never mind. So I, will, I, will, I will remember it next time. Good eye. So, yes. Um, in summary, we both really like the New York book, don't we? Yes. And it's it's brutal and cunning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've got two very different approaches to orc armies. We took very different sort of like army builds and strategies and wars and everything, and they both felt legitimately like good. Yeah, against each other. Because I mean, even when you were like, "Oh, I haven't really got much of a way to deal with those aircraft," and then you realised that your death copters could charge them. <laughs> Yes. Um, and you did sort of like ramming speed against them to try and knock it out of the sky. And then yep. the second one that flew past, you decided to take out of the air with your buzz bomb. Yes, that was... Uh, um, beehive of squigs at me. Yeah. Throw bees into the engine. Problem solved. Yeah, it was good. It was, uh, it's very much a narrative wargamer approved is the new art codex, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, like fun game. Can't yeah. wait to get my hands on it. <laughs> look, look forward to the upcoming Orcs on Crusade. Because oh, yes. they do some fun stuff on Crusade. Oh, yes. So, uh, Dave, I believe you've not played a game as such, but you've got oh, yeah. yeah, 40k, that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the reasons I've not been playing very much 40k is I've not let go of the narrative, but I've been playing a lot of Stargrave. Um, so that's a, a narrative game of a different, uh, from a different company, and it's um, it's fun for those that are interested. But I'm not going into details on this podcast. Um, but I'm getting back to 40k now. I've got past the uh, all the preparation I did for the competitive tournaments I took part in a couple of months ago. I'm uh, I was ready to get back into narrative wargaming. <clears throat> so uh, I've set up a, a first of my crusade games for my Rainbow Warriors on Friday, where their own Katie and Dan. He says he'll probably bring his desk guard. He's not entirely decided yet, but um, yeah, kick off with a 50 power level game and, um, and see how the Rainbow Warriors do. We decided to play in the Pariah Nexus because um, they're hankering to do that and we've got an Ekron player in the group, so um, see how it goes. It should be fun. Nice. Yeah, watch out. Watch out for the afflictions and other things that will just really make life difficult for your army. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, narratively, my Rainbow Warriors are always slightly doomed anyway. Not least because <laughs> they have me as their general. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it, it'll be fun. It'll be fun uh, doing some fun 40k again. Not that the tournament in itself wasn't fun, but it's not. It's not my natural style of play. But it got me <laughs> back into playing a lot of 40k after lockdown. Yeah, that makes sense. Excellent. Well, speaking of mission packs, as I say, we may not have had chance, or at least I've not had a chance yet, to try out Beyond the Veil um, in practice, but I have played with some missions from Plague Purge, and I quite enjoy those, as well as um, the look of the Beyond the Veil stuff, which means I'm equally excited to possibly try and get some games in using Amidst the Ashes. So uh, I think we'll jump over to that now, and that's going to be what we're going to look at next. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. You kids listen up now, listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of you without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative Wah Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Right. Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. Right you kids, get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint line. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them RedTube sent you. You might get some extra special. And we're back, guys. So this is tonight's Spotlight Topic, where we're going to be diving into the Amidst the Ashes Crusade Mission Pack. So, I mean, it's actually been a little while now since I suppose it hit shop shelves, as it were. But as always with these mission packs, I don't think I've really heard much of it from anyone else. Um, nope. And as always, I continue to aim to give them more exposure because I do think they are pretty great. Um, so yeah, this is the latest one, and um, in some ways, I think it's breaking the mold a little bit. Um, not that there's been too much of a precedent yet, but I still think it's um, it's definitely different. I think it stands apart from the other two, and we'll get into why. You mean tech trees? Well, amongst other things, yeah. yeah. Um, but I suppose first of all, 
um, the things that is kind of similar um, in concept now to what we know with these mission packs in that it's a smaller spiral bound um, publication rather than an A4 paper book. It does, as always, come with the mini rub book that makes up about a quarter of the book. I didn't count the exact pages this time, Dave, but I know it is about a quarter. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I noticed it was a little bit less than a half uh, when I was flicking through it just now uh, in advance of the podcast. And it's, um, uh, yeah, page 71 it starts and page 110 it finishes. So, yeah, just a touch over a quarter, maybe a third. Yeah, about that. But again, as always, it is a mini rule book. So they are out there and available to purchase, which still remains kind of a, a first for any edition of 40k, pretty much. <laughs> And, um, and even if you're not into the particular background, I mean, one of the things it is heavy on is missions. If you want some more variety of missions for any reason, uh, I think this is one of its strengths, right? It is. I mean, like you said, there's, there's only five pages of lore in here because it's not really a lore publication. That's all in your book of fire. Um, is but it those just... five pages are just setting the stage, really. It's, it's Yeah, it's reminders. It tells you what Colossae is and Fathom and Metallica. Remind you who Bellacor is and yeah, I was going to say, is that is it uh, five pages of lore about um, England playing against Australia at cricket? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Um, but yeah, it, it's basically setting the scene how it's kind of like later stages of Typhus's invasion and basically all the chaos stuff is either burnt out or it's just settled into now raiding and pillaging and in fact a lot of imperial relief forces are now starting to attempt to reclaim the sector and force typhus on the run again is the sort of general gist of the whole second half of the the charidon story arc but obviously typhus has done you know innumerable amounts of damage across the entire sector has very much still come out the victor, as it were, in the conflict, even if he's now having to, you know, evade the inevitable imperial retribution. Um, and all the missions contained within kind of revolve around that setting. Yeah, um, that checks out. Yeah. Yep. So what we have in here is new additions to Crusade. Um, there are not any new battle traits, battle scars, or relics, because those basically are covered by the Book of Fire. So, as we mentioned in the last episode, there's various things in there for, you know, um, leveling up, giving you fancy gear, or um, particularly fancy swords, or reclaimed bionic eyes, or other bits of <laughs> pieces from defeated foes and heroes alike. Um, so that's... Uh, as I've said with the Plague Purge stuff, it's kind of a companion book, really, to um, the Book of Fire, um, which makes it all the more interesting that I feel Prior Nexus didn't get anything like that. You know, Plague Purge was for Book of Rust, Amidst the Ashes for Book of Fire, and presumably we'll probably be seeing another mission pack at some point to go with Octarius in the near future. But um, Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here you can tell would work nicely alongside the campaign system in Book of Fire. Fair enough. However, things which are unique to this mission pack is this brand new upgrade tree sort of style of progression for Crusade units. Um, And it includes two such 
um, like upgrade paths to these different upgrade trees that you can use. One of them is for upgrading vehicle units, and one of them is for upgrading psychic units. And while thematically it's kind of intended to be like imperial vehicles, i.e., you know, all the omnisire sort of stuff and raising of the machine spirits, versus you know, the obviously corrupted denzins of the war and their predations on the weak and the unfortunate. But these aren't tied mechanically to being like, you know, Imperial or Chaos. You can use these for anything. So you could have Orc vehicles could use Awakening of the Strong or you could have Eldar Psychers using the Corruption of the Weak Tree because... It's just a thematic framing device for this system, but the the system itself is universal in its application. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's not like a tech tree where you can evolve all of it, like you might find in a computer game, is it? It's a, it's a pathway that you can follow uh, through upgrades. Yes. So each of these trees, and we'll have, we'll have the fun part of trying to describe it now in an audio format. <laughs> It's our specialist medium. You'll be fine, Tony. Yeah. So basically, you've got three tiers to it. Level 1, level 2, and level 3. And each tier has a number of choices. So, you know, a selection of upgrades. Level 1 has two choices. Level 2 has three choices. And level 3 has four choices. But each of those are tied via a branching path. So when you start at level 1 and you pick one of the two options... Yep. That in itself only gives you then access to two of the three in level two. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. And then each of those equally give you access to um, two of the four in level three. So given how you could branch across the trees, you can't quite access everything if you chose if you choose one option at the start on level one, you will definitely be locked out of at least one of options in level three because you can't find a path to it. But you could get through... You could get to most things, like, you know, about 80% of it is available at the first step, and then you'll narrow it down as you go. Right. So, the way that that all works and how you progress is through requisitions. So, there are six new requisitions in this book, but... They're actually three identical ones because it's just one set is for one tree and one is for the other. They do the exact same thing, but obviously just for the wording purposes, one is tied to the awakening of the strong tree and the other is tied to the corruption of the weak. Um, importantly, you can only have one upgrade tree associated with your um, order of battle. So it's not like you could have vehicle units upgrading and psyche units in your army upgrading. Okay. So you kind of got to pick a side. Yes. Um, Which, there's not necessarily anything to say they're going to do this in the future, but if, say, a future publication also included some more upgrade trees, I would assume you would still only be able to have one on the go at a time. And I suppose... uh, So technically, the first requisition you purchase gives you like a keyword for your order of battle that ties you into that but right i think if you were to say remove all the units from your order of battle that were involved in it 
then you could probably you know opt to remove yourself from that key system if you fancy the new one in a year's time for a different publication who knows sure so the way it works um you can spend one requisition point in order to select your upgrade tree of choice and gain one progression point so this is either an awakening point or a corruption point based on which tree you've picked then for a second uh, requisition point so this is the second stratagem and not stratagem the second requisition you select a unit in your order of battle and you put it on the path so you spend your progression point that you just got and you pick a level one ability for that unit um, and it gains and the associated level one ability from that tree so it doesn't have to have any experience it could be a brand new you know thing that you've added to your order of battle and for collectively two requisition points you can immediately give it a level one upgrade in this progression system okay but the flip side of that is it can only be a unit that is either battle ready or bloodied rank because if you're too experienced then obviously you're experienced and you've already picked your like your path of the warrior or whatever sort of thing you're not following these trees because okay. you're you're too experienced in doing the standard crusade progression if that makes sense hmm. yeah and then the third requisition is that for one requisition point you pick a unit you spend one of the progression points you've got so your awakening point or your corruption point and you pick a level two or level three ability, whichever one would be next. Right. So you're looking at it's one requisition per level in the upgrade tree. Okay. Um, and by completing agendas and missions from this mission pack, you earn awakening points and corruption points for your order of battle. So by playing these missions, the rewards will provide you the upgrade materials you need to advance your vehicle or psyche units through these upgrade trees. Okay. And then the final note is that once a unit is on one of these upgrade trees, it no longer gains experience or battle honors in the usual way. So it kind of shifts to this alternate method of upgrading rather than the standard crusade method. Okay. So it, it, it's a... Um, presumably when you get one of these levels, it increases your crusade points as if it were yes. a battle honor. Yeah, basically. Getting a level increases your crusade value, yes. So it effectively swaps out your um, getting better from getting experience for getting better from uh, requisitions slash doing certain agendas. Yes, which okay. is why it is kind of quite heavily tied to this particular set of missions. Yeah. If you're going to go off and play Pariah Nexus, you know, you're not going to get any corruption any points, points or awakening points. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could obviously argue the same is true of your investigation points in Pariah Nexus, but being yeah. that that's an army-wide system rather than a unit-by-unit level system, it's easier to just dip in and out of that one, I would say, than, than this one. I guess. I mean, I guess it depends how big your uh, order of battle is, because you could have a unit that sits on the sidelines and doesn't play until you play one of these missions. 
Yeah, you, got, you could almost have like strike forces in your order of battle, and one of them is busy yeah. doing um, upgrade trees in amidst the ashes, and the other one's busy hunting <laughs> Necron tech in the Prior Nexus. That'd be quite cool. Um. So anyway, yeah. Yep. So to give you some examples, then we'll just quickly yes, please. These trees. Uh, which would you prefer, Dan? Do you want to look at the vehicle tree or the psycho tree? Oh, I I like a bit of corruption, me. Right, so corruption of the week. Um, so the, for the example of the level one abilities, do you want to hear what whispers of despair does or murmurs of disorder? I mean, they sound pretty similar. Uh, whispers or murmurs? Whispers. <laughs> right. Level 1 ability, Whispers of Despair. At the start of the morale phase, select one enemy unit within 12 inches of this model. Until the end of the phase, subtract one from the leadership characteristic of models in that unit. Okay. So it's just, you know, nice little thing. You kind of get, you know, a morale yeah, uh, debuff. A, a negative aura, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, a targeted ability at the start yeah. of the morale phase, but yeah. It's, it's um, something... Which then means if you were to upgrade um, this particular Psyche unit again to a level 2, you would now have the choice between Aspect of Hopelessness or War Permanations. Aspect of Hopelessness? Was that uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical? <laughs> <laughs> which, which would you prefer, Dan? Well, I mean, now I've got to hear Aspect of Hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> so this one would be... While an enemy unit is within six inches of this model, each time a morale test is failed for that unit, D3 models flee instead of one. Fair enough. I so can the, see how that combines. Mm-hmm. So the initial loss for simply failing morale is D3 models rather than yeah. one, which is quite noticeable a difference. Yeah. Which then means that if you were to go to a level three upgrade for this psycho... You would now have the choice between picking Wayne Resolve or Psychic Barrage, because in this particular tree, all the level 3 abilities are a new psychic power that you would gain access to. Okay, that's cool. So that is Wayne Resolve or Psychic Barrage. Which would you prefer? Hmm. I feel like we've been going down the uh, being a scary, scary person um, tree. So, so Wayne Resolve. Wayne Resolve. A malediction with a warp charge value of 6. If manifested, select one enemy unit within 18 inches of this Psyche. Then roll a d6 and add this Psyche's leadership characteristic to the result. Your opponent rolls one d6 and adds their unit's leadership characteristic to the result. If your total is higher than your opponent's, until the start of your next Psychic phase, that unit loses the objective secured ability. Ooh, that's tasty. So it's kind of like a mind war debuff as opposed to wounds. So that guy can point at a unit and make them leadership, like minus one leadership, mm-hmm. and then go point at them again with his brain uh, and make them not obsec. Yep. yep. And then and... in the morale phase, D3 <laughs> yep. of them run away. <laughs> yes. It's quite cool. And funnily enough, although you wouldn't know it, since you can't see, you picked the entire left-hand choices for the tree. You know, I would have guessed something like that, actually, because uh, <laughs> it, that that definitely feels like 
one like one complete line down of uh, of thought of theme so to those just abilities. To, just to quickly run you through the complete right hand equivalent. Then. Go on then. Still not the entire tree, but murmurs of disorder would have been at the start of the fight phase. Select one enemy unit within six inches of this model until the end of the phase. That unit and models in it do not count as having made a charge move this turn. Yeah, that's good. So that's going to mess up Blood Angels or Space mm-hmm. Wolves. Um, aura of Restlessness. While a friendly unit is within six inches of this model, each time that unit is selected to advance, add one to its advance roll. Okay, fine. And then you would have got the psychic power Terrifying Inferno. Oh, right then. <laughs> Which is a Witchfire with a warp charge of eight. Uh, pick an enemy unit within 18 inches of the Psyker. Then roll 1d6 and add this Psyker's leadership characteristic to the result. Your opponent rolls a d6 and adds their unit's leadership to the result. If your total is higher than your opponent's, the enemy unit suffers d3 mortal wounds until the end of the turn. And subtract 1 from combat attrition tests taken for that unit. Okay. And yeah. Also, Terrifying Inferno, brilliant film from the 1970s, if you've not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just two of the pathways of this tree, and that's just one of the trees. So yep. we're not going to go over the vehicle one now, but as you can imagine, the other one includes a whole bunch of cool things for vehicles. You know, Is it a, a similar theme of you start with a like a minor buff? Just, it's the same, yeah, yeah then, absolutely. Then something you can help your mates or whatever, and then some cool ability at the end. Yes, because yeah. obviously they don't gain psychic powers, but as of some level 3 examples, your vehicle unit could gain obsec itself. Right, yeah. just innately cool have stuff. the ability obsec. Or you could um, have models in this unit do not suffer the penalty incurred to their hit rolls for firing heavy weapons while their unit is engaged with range of enemy models. Okay. And stuff like that. You know, so there's a bunch of cool things to make your vehicles better. Okay. And... And then um, that's sort of the core gimmick of the book because then we've got some new agendas, but all they are is do a thing with a thing, you know, earn some progression points for your tree. So, right. for example, a machine vendetta. Keep a machine vendetta tally for each vehicle unit from your army. Add one to the unit's vendetta tally each time it destroys an enemy vehicle with a wounds characteristic of twelve or more. Uh, with characteristic less than twelve, and add two to its tally if it's a vehicle with twelve or more. Each unit is that a starting. Is that a starting? Yeah, it's that starting wounds. Yeah. Yeah. Each unit gains two experience points for every mark on its machine vendetta tally, and then if your crusade force has the machine arisen note, which means you're using that um, upgrade tree. Um, if you add four to five marks on your tally, your crusade force gains one awakening point. And if you add six or more on your tally, your crusade force gains two awakening points. Cool. It's a uh, the agendas do provide experience to the units that complete them, but also if you are following that tree, you gain the awakening yeah. points. Cool. Which is funny because obviously, if you've got an awakened unit, it itself is not gaining experience. <laughs> but the idea is you it would benefit from the awakening points that you reap as a result of that agenda. Yeah. Um, the same is true of some of like the corruption points ones. We've got um, what's it called? Poison their minds, which is a warpcraft agenda. 
as you can imagine, where uh, you keep a tally for your psyche units and they can perform the psychic action, poison their minds, up charge five. One psychic unit from your army can attempt to perform this action in your psychic phase if it is within your opponent's deployment zone and within 12 inches of an objective marker. Each unit gains two point, two experience points for every mark on their poison their minds tally to a maximum of four experience. If your crusade force has warp corruption note, so using the warp tree, then if your tally score is one to two, you get a corruption point. If it's three or more, you get two corruption points. And there's you know six such agendas in here: three for the machine spirit tree and three for the corrupted psychos tree. Yeah, fair enough. That's so, fairly know. similar to what we've been seeing in the codexes for where there's been like special resources you can earn for your faction. There's agendas to earn them that also get you XP, right? Yeah. Yeah, basically. It's almost kind of like this is a crusade um, resource game available to armies that don't currently have a 9th edition codex. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, you could be playing as your Tyranids and you're trying to upgrade all your psychers using Corruption of the Week, and that's the resource that you're chasing with your Crusade until yeah. such time as, you know, it inevitably changes to biomass points. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm sure that'll be what it is, and it'll probably be, ooh, for every uh, many biomass points you have, you can cash them in for a free um, unit-based upgrade, i.e. fresh recruits or requisition uh, limit increase. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, other than that, you've got your you know your full selection of agendas which you pick from to play games using this mission pack. But they're the sort of standard tried and tested crusade ones, plus right. these six alternatives that are thrown in for the upgrade trees. Okay. Out of interest, are the agendas listed the same as the? Because some of them changed slightly in the previous pack, didn't they, from the rulebook versions? Yeah, so, for example, you've still got things like Kingslayer, Assassins, Call the Hordes, Reaper, that sort of stuff. And I'm sure, I haven't checked precisely, but if there's any slight wording updates, I'm sure they'll probably be matching whatever the latest iterations of those yeah. okay. agendas were. Um, for example, you know, Witch Hunter is in there where... Um, Add one to its tally every time it destroys an enemy unit, or you add three to it instead if it was a psychic character, which I right. think is different to what the original 9th edition version of that agenda was. Fair enough. Because it's now accounting for the difference between being a psychic unit versus a psychic character. Yeah. Especially relevant now. Yes, especially relevant now. <laughs> um, and then there are also uh, six new stratagems, but again... They're tied to these corrupted mind psychers or awakened spirit vehicles, and you've got three for each. Okay. What roughly um, sort of things do they do? So, for example, with the vehicle ones, you've got pick one out of uncontrollable machine spirit, calculating spirit, or enraged spirits. Uh, calculating spirit. Uh, 1 slash 2 CP. Use this stratagem in your shooting phase when an awakened spirit vehicle from your army is selected to shoot. Until the end of the phase, each time a model in that unit makes an attack that targets 
a unit within half range. If the Awakened Spirit unit remains stationary during its movement phase, add one to the attack's hit roll. Okay. And it's um, 1 CP cool. if it's below power rating of 15, or 2 CP if it's 15. Hmm. So, yeah, so it's you... not not necessarily tied into the the mechanic, it's just having the keyword allows you to do those stratagems. Yes, which then in itself is kind of another benefit that you yeah. gain out of the initial requisition investment to make them a level 1 unit yeah. and use these stratagems. Yeah, that's um, cool. And likewise with with the psycho ones, following through what <clears throat> Dan's thread from before, there's there's a two CP stratagem called Deceitful Whispers, uh, which when you use it at the start of the morale phase, any unit within nine inches of the corrupted mind psycho, which is a keyword for, uh, for the psychers, uh, until the end of that phase, each time a morale test is taken for that unit, roll one additional CD six, so you can force. Uh, a little bit more around uh, around the morale as well. Yeah. So you can boost both, as you can hear, both of them sort of boost those sort of development trees. Cool. Yeah. So it's not even like roll additional d6 and pick the highest. It's two CP to force them to take morale test on two d6. Oof. Brutal. So yeah, it builds on itself then, you know, and loops into this system. Like everything in here, the agendas, the stratagems, the requisitions are all tied to the upgrade tree. Okay. Um, and then, as I say, the actual missions themselves follow a similar trend in that most of the missions in here, when it comes to the victor bonus, you get a choice, and it's typically a choice between either a standard Crusade-style reward, i.e. pick two units to be marked for greatness or gain a free battle trait, something like that. Okay. Or you can pick a reward that's a bonus to one of the upgrade trees. You know, so it might be gain X amount of corruption points. Or a unit that has an upgrade might get get to pick an additional level one or level two upgrade that it doesn't already have or that could be outside of its normal path. Stuff like that. Okay. Um and it's not always necessarily um, an option for both. So one mission might have a crusade, a regular crusade reward, or a choice for the corrupted mind tree, but that's it. And then right. another mission might have a choice for a standard crusade reward or the awakened spirit tree. So there's even some level of decision making in picking your mission, because if you yeah. have players in a campaign who want to try and pursue this they're going to be engendered to pick certain missions because they want to try and get the rewards for Awakened Spirit. I guess that makes sense. Then, yeah, there's a political play to be made there between yeah. you know opponents as to what mission you're even going to attempt to draw your opponent into. Well, I can imagine, narratively speaking, if there's a mission that's like, recover the scrapped vehicles, it would get you additional corruption, uh, initial Awakened Spirit points. And if it was like, do a spooky ritual, it would get you additional corrupted mind points or abilities. Yes, pretty much. I think spooky ritual is almost shorthand for one of these mission names. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember which one it was exactly, but one of them sounded exactly like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's the gist of everything that's in here beyond the 24 additional crusade missions. Um, which 
we're going to quickly review one per scale of game now because I actually think these are really interesting missions because one thing I did make a note of here um, was that unlike the previous mission packs where they're described as having 24 unique missions I felt that they actually had more like about 15-ish because various ones were basically just duplicated but right. to adjust to the scale of game you know so yeah. it might be slightly different methods of scoring or slightly different objective packer placement yeah but, you know the the gimmick the like the fallout zone or the um, secure the archaeotech mechanic was duplicated because it's essentially just the same mission scaled up or down right i have to say that's not actually the case in this one i feel okay. like it's almost 24 unique different missions I didn't really see much in there. I think there was one that maybe felt like it was very similar to one over a different scale, and that was about it. Yeah. Although, I, I suspect we're probably not going to look at this one, but I am quite drawn to the first combat patrol mission, simply because it's very reminiscent of a Necromunda mission I, I played a couple of years ago, uh, which is Fatberg clearance. <laughs> <laughs> Where you're in the tunnels and you've got to clean out uh you know some of the guff to be able to to move on and of course you fight your opponent while you're doing it so uh that one just amused me as a as a description for, <laughs> for a mission what a pleasant experience yeah your mission briefing for that one is fighting against an enemy's guerrilla tactics is an enormously difficult task they hide in tunnels and burrows and can strike from all locations it takes enormous resources to crush them, and their infrastructure has to be purged of extreme prejudice before being destroyed completely. But in this case, what they're hiding in is, like you say, an entire series of nurgly flesh-infected fatberg caves on yep. these artificial biological islands in the oceans of Fathom. <laughs> Lovely. Like, the gimmick for that mission is the fact that the um, defender can put units in strategic reserve, but when they arrive, they can arrive within like six inches of an objective marker. Because yeah, cool. the idea is that the objective markers are the tunnel entrances that you're trying to destroy as the attacker. Nice. I feel like that's one mission where I don't want to see a custom board especially made for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't want to see what a, you know island-sized Nurgle Fatberg looks like. It's I mean it's one of those it's one of those tabletops that you can make after after you, on a Sunday afternoon when you want to play 40k after you've had your, your Sunday lunch with all the congealed <laughs> fat from the roast, right? I was thinking just whatever you can pull out of a drain. <laughs> and you just varnish it and let it set. Yeah, just <laughs> there you go. Oh. Anyway, yeah, the, Sorry, yeah. the combat patrol mission that I did want to highlight instead, because it is far less gross, <laughs> was the hard landing mission. Um, so this one basically is a take on, like, you know, Defender starts in the middle of the board, you know, like a 12-inch square okay. section, um, and the attackers starts on either a short table edge, um, because it's meant to be a crashed um, lander. You know, basically, and um, the defenders' forces are all the unfortunates that were on board this landing craft uh, who've now found themselves surrounded by the enemies. I don't know if you, cool. you've ever read 15 Hours, but it's basically. I, yes, I have, actually, that. yes. Yeah, 
one of the best <laughs> guard novels that there is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. But yeah, they they all crash land on, in no man's land, having to escape out of their lander to get to Imperial lines before the orcs surround them and kill them all. Yes, and uh, I guess spoiler alert: it doesn't go very well. Yeah, <laughs> it does not go well at all. Well, for guard, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so the way this one plays out is that there are four objective markers which are in the extreme corners of the table. Huh. Um, so they're all in the attackers' deployment zones. And the objective is that in the end game, the defender needs to have units holding those objectives and the attacker scores points for every defender unit destroyed or that is not holding one of those objectives. Because cool. the defenders are trying to basically um, get an escape route. Right. They're trying to establish, you know, an escape route through enemy lines. And you don't have to... The defender doesn't score based on how many objective markers they hold. It's They score based on the value of the units they have that are holding any objective marker. Right. So you could try and go all in on one objective marker, if that makes sense, and still yeah. score lots of points. You don't need to hold all four. Or yeah, you can so, try and slip units through to the other ones to try and pick up some more points as well. So it is almost like the um, the whole get the unit off the board type thing, but without that mechanic. Yes. Um, and the added um, like gimmick for this mission is that any the obviously the defender only gets a 12 by 12 inch square deployment zone. Any units that they can't set up um, have to be put in strategic reserve. They can't be anywhere else. They have to be in strategic reserve. But when they arrive, they arrive within the defender's deployment zone, which is obviously at the center of the table. Right. Because it's the next, you know, group of stragglers that are emerging from the wreckage. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then in this mission, the defender has the first turn. Um, and the victory bonus choices are um, picking two units to be marked for greatness rather than one or if the defender wins they gain one corruption point per corrupted mind unit they control that is within range of an objective marker so making sure that your corrupted mind psychers are the ones escaping <laughs> and if the attacker wins and they destroyed the defender's warlord they gain D3 corruption points. Fair enough. So you can see that's an example where it's all about the corruption tree. Yeah. Um, I think, funnily enough, in the narrative, this is actually meant to be like a Chaos Forces lander that's crashing Imperial lines, and they're trying to escape before the Imperials basically wipe them out. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And then the incursion mission I want to highlight was forces in disarray. I think one thing to say is all, a lot of these missions all have very specific objectives in unusual places. Yes, actually, I would say that is a good overview of this one, uh, this whole mission pack. Because, so for example, this one is a great example of that. Because this is basically a very traditional 40k game, long table edge deployment, four objective markers all of them in no man's land and they're pretty evenly like zigzagged if that makes sense 
So you, okay. you can imagine that layout, you know. The difference is that if you if you split the table in half, um, parallel to the deployment zones, um, two of the objective markers in one half of the table are labelled as objective markers A's, if that makes sense. Like both of them are objective marker A type. Yep. And the other two are both objective marker B type. So you've got two objective A's and two objective B's, which are respectively on the same sides of the table as each other. And when you get to the declare reserves and transports step of the pre-battle setup, so basically when you're declaring how your army's going to be deployed, as it were, um, the players have to split their force into into two parts, um, but you only have to have a minimum of 25% in one half. So it doesn't have to be a half, basically. Right. It's it's a half, but not a half. Yeah, yeah. You could have a 75% force and a 25% force if you wanted, or anywhere along that scale. But tactically speaking, you probably want to do 50-50 anyway. Because after you've divided them, you roll a d6, and you pick one half, and you roll a d6. On a 1-3, to units in that half i'm gonna say I keep saying half even though it doesn't have to be a half. yeah sure <laughs> but um on a one to three the units in that first half can only hold objective markers labeled objective marker a and the units in your other half of your force can only hold objective markers labeled objective marker b right so the idea is that narratively your force is getting conflicting orders from command so <laughs> some of your officers have been told they have to go hold the objectives over there, uh, like in the enemy lines. And some of your other officers have been told they have to hold the objectives here in your like, half of the board. Nice. So your leaders, like your officers, are only going to do what their orders have told them to do. <laughs> um, so you don't know when you're divvying your force up which units are going to be able to hold which objectives. <laughs> and then when it comes to conflicting on the table your opponent is only going to themselves have certain units that can take certain ones off you so you're going to be prioritising what units you would be targeting in unusual ways yeah I could see that being amusing even though it's quite a simple mission otherwise which is just table edge, you know, long table edge deployments and four objective markers yeah I quite like that um, your victory bonus here is you increase your supply limit or you can select an awakened spirit unit and it gains the level 1 ability that it does not already have cool and so again you can see more ways piling into this upgrade tree system yeah so then we've got a strike force mission so the you know the 6 of each of these for each mission scale hence 24 new missions but like these are some that I thought particularly interesting. Um, sorry, page 48. Ah, yes. Forward Recon. <laughs> um, so this is one of those ones that's basically the attacker is trying to get as deep into the defender's territory as possible in order to score points based on you know how far they've managed to get past the enemy defences. So this one has a, a very unusual and alternate map setup, you know, as I enjoy for any mission that plays around with the deployment <laughs> concepts. 
So you have the attacker gets one shot table edge. The defender gets six evenly spaced deployment spots. Imagine the uh, six result on a D6. Okay. Your six dots, and if that's placed just slightly off-center, you know, on a a six-by-four table equivalent. Yep. Because the defender, when they're deploying their army, can only deploy up to six units and slash or transports containing units. And each time they deploy one, they have to be placed on one of these six unoccupied spots. Nice. Because it's basically, that's the defender's, like, you know, patrol that's in the area. And the rest of the defender's forces go into um, strategic reserve for no CP. Because they're going to be coming on to the table as it becomes apparent that they're under attack. The attacker deploys their entire army on their shot table edge. Um, But they pick up to four units from their army to denote as forward recon units. And these are the only units that matter for scoring purposes. Okay. And how you score is by getting these forward recon units into the scoring zones. Now these are... If, if you imagine taking like you know a vertical slice of your table, 12 inches deep, and that entire section is a zone, and then there's three of them all racked up against each other from the right. opposite hot table edge. So yeah. you've got um, 12, 24, and 36 inches away from the opposite table edge. Yep. And as you play the game, the attacker scores progressive points at the end of every battle round for every forward recon unit they have in either zone A, B, or C. A being the nearest to the attacker and worth the least points. Yeah. B being worth more and C being worth the most. So, progressively, at the end of each round, you'll score 5 victory points per unit in zone A, 10 per unit in zone B, and 20 per unit in zone C. Then, conversely, the defender scores their points at the end of the game so that's the only time they score but they score for each zone which has no enemy forward recon units within it right and they score 10 points if zone a is clear 30 points if zone b is clear and 50 points if zone c is clear i see yeah so Clearing off the very end is the, is is vital for the defender. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that it's a mission where one player scores progressively and the other is end of game. Yeah, interesting. Which is something you don't see very often. In this particular mission, the attacker has the first turn, which is crucial for then getting the jump on these up to six units from the defender before the defender's reserves are going to start pouring onto the board to try and act as roadblocks and interceptors. So you can already see how these are all quite unusual missions. They're not straightforward ones. I mean, I know I've picked some particular highlights, but I wouldn't say any of these missions are just sort of like your standard, here's six objectives, hold more, kill more sort of scenario. I I would say that they sound like they're quite um, simple in terms of the, the kind of like the rules from they haven't got a whole load of crazy special rules and like tables to roll on like we usually get. Um, no. 
so they yeah, yeah. they are very yeah. applicable to kind of anything. I mean, that one that we've just discussed, if you ignore the section of the page that says victory bonuses, you've literally got, like, three blocks of information. The one that's the yeah. deployment, the one that's the scoring for the attacker, and one that's the scoring for the defender. Yeah. That's it. So there's, like, three so paragraphs of information. It's, it's doing quite a lot with not much. Exactly. And speaking of doing quite a lot is when you get to the onslaught mission called Desecration. Okay. <laughs> because I think this, in all the time I've been playing this game, has set a new record um, for <laughs> the most number of objective markers I've ever seen used in a game of 40k. Alright then. As per um, the Plague Purge Crusade pack, all the onslaught missions use a, a, a longer table format yeah. because it's assumed you're playing a larger game you know, 3000 points plus so yeah. these are all very long rectangular tables and as they're displayed in um, this book imagine seeing it vertically so the attacker's deployment is the top and bottom of that table and the defender has a uh, a center line so from long table edge to long table edge they get this like center deployment zone. Okay. Um, the defender's line is twelve inches either side of the center line, so they're still getting you know a twenty-four inch band yeah. of deployment zone. So it's quite you know a, a chunky area because these are going to be big armies. Yeah. Um, the attacker has an eighteen-inch no man's land on both sides of that deployment zone, but. <laughs> This mission uses 15 objective markers. It is a ridiculous number. Yeah, I don't think I've ever played a game with more than... I mean, I might play a game with like eight, maybe. But... Yeah. 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 And the reason for that is because these objective markers are going to be destroyed throughout the game. Like They serve no purpose other than for the attacker to try and perform a destroy action on them to remove them from the board and for the defender to stop that happening. So nine of them are set up in a relative grid formation within the defender's deployment zone, like along the um, center line and along the front edges of their deployment. And then there are also three more objective markers in each no man's land. And the attacker is basically trying to rush to destroy these statues and tear them down because it's you know, they're attacking a holy site and pulling down all these, you know, um, relics of renovation. Uh, renovation? No. <laughs> relics of um, veneration, you know, to the defender. And the defender is having none of it. Um, but the extra interesting little wrinkle in this is that, as we've seen missions before where you can perform an action and at the end of the turn you destroy the objective marker. This particular action can actually be started while you're within engagement range of enemy models. So okay. the, there's, which would normally be the main factor that prevents you from doing this. You know, if the enemy can just engage you, you can't continue the you know destructive path that you're trying to conduct. But actually, here, there's nothing barring you from doing that. The whole point is that you are more interested in destroying the place than you are even defending yourself. I mean, 
I know that I can't remember whether or not you'd actually be able to make attacks back or would that cause you to fail your action? Because I know typically making attacks, I believe, causes you to fail your actions, uh, doesn't it? You can, you can make melee attacks and continue an action. You just can't charge. Or shoot, I believe. Yeah, and most actions you can't do if there's an enemy within range, obviously. So you can yeah. fight back if you are charged and doing an action without breaking the action. Um, you just obviously can't engage that fight yourself. Right, yeah, so it's not like you could declare a charge on a unit holding an objective and then tear it down in the process because you would have started the action at the start of your movement phase. Yeah. Not the end of your movement phase, I think it is. But... Yeah. Fair enough. But yeah, it's just this this tide of attacking you know, forces that are just trying to pull down these 15 objectives <laughs> and use the defender are just trying to stop that happening. But it's so hard to do because it's started at the end of the movement phase and completed at the end of the turn. So it's not even like there's a turn's delay on it. Yeah. Pretty much if they're going to start it, they're going to do it. And the fact they can start it even if you engage them means that you really are having to try and body block these objectives. You're going to have to push out to try and yep. stop the enemy from wrecking them. Um, and the end game scoring for this is literally just six points to the attacker for every objective marker destroyed and six points to the defender for every marker not destroyed. So it boils down to, you know, does the attacker destroy more than the defender saves? It's a very arbitrary six points. I know, right? And I'm guessing it might be so that it's tied to the heroic achievement, is it? Because you would have to destroy all 15 to hit 90. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Ten for a painted army. Maximum is a hundred, right? <laughs> True. Yeah, so you could get away with destroying fourteen of them and still getting your tactical masterclass. Um, and then yeah, this one again has you know, two requisition points as a victory bonus, or you can select a corrupted mind unit that already has a level three ability and select another ability from that tree that it doesn't already have, so another like level 3 ability. Oof. And then any single unit can only be selected for this victory bonus once. That's pretty beefy, though. I mean, you've just won an Onslaught game. I suppose. So it's a big reward for a big game. Yeah. But this is one that I think would make for a really good, unique like board setup for this, something created bespokely for it. I could imagine creating like you know fifteen little statues, maybe just like take some um, space marine minis or sisters of battle minis and paint them all up as statues. Yeah, and have them across your board. You know that'd be cool. Physically I can imagine down these statues. You could quite easily do it with um, like civilians or something instead. Yeah, I mean there is actually um, a mission in here. I think that is um, about capturing. Um, like objective markers that move around because they're meant to be yeah. civilians. But yeah, that this is one way you could do the same thing where it's just, you know, secure slash capture the VIPs and there's 15 yeah. of them. So yeah, it's it's funny that given that little rundown of the missions themselves, I actually think there's a range of very unique missions in here. 
um, which is something that I said of the Beyond the Veil mission pack, but not so much of Plague Purge. I thought that Plague Purge had a more like standardized mission styles, but then it was the like the universal stratagems and the other stuff in there that made that interesting. Yeah. This one kind of I mean it, it very much goes all in on its gimmick, its upgrade tree stuff. But at the same time, the individual missions are quite different and out there. So I've kind of got a little bit of a conflicted opinion of it, if I'm honest. Fair enough. I mean, you don't have to love everything. I think there's only one way to find out, though. We'll just have to give it a go. See how it feels I guess when so. you play it. Play some missions. Well, yeah, it's because it's not that I dislike it as such, but I just feel it's kind of got two different faces to it. Like, there's two aspects to this mission pack. So I, I, I sort of wrote a little summary point here where I felt that you know this book can be used for expanding your set of playable crusade missions. Like, Yep. really well because there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that's very unique and creates some really interesting missions to play but if you if you're gonna pick this up for just that and you know if you skip out on the upgrade trees and all their associated stratagems and agendas you're kind of going to be losing a lot of the character of this particular expansion yeah because i said the Plague Purge was really good for that, in that Plague Purge works as just a great expansion of missions to play with Crusade and an expansion of stratagems and agendas that you're using them. Yeah. But this one, if you're not going to invest in the upgrade tree, then you don't get to play around with any of the new stratagems or the agendas or even half the victory bonuses. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it it's not really necessarily a good purchase unless you intend to go kind of all in on it sort of i I think i think that unless you're a collector this is probably the first one i would say you can probably skip out on if you're just looking to pick up extra missions to play crusade right i mean if you if you want to put the uh, that if you want to buy it for that you that's great i mean i've got it and that's what i'll use it for you know i I would love to play some of these missions, but I don't think I'm going to particularly be trying to adjust my Crusade Force to use the upgrade trees. Right. So then there's a the question if you're getting your value for money out of it. Yeah, I suppose. But the flip side of that is that whereas I think Plague Purge and Beyond the Veil have been very good for just adding to Crusade, just adding to being able to pick up and play Crusade with anyone you, you know, you're going to go play a casual game with. I think that this Amidst the Ashes one is actually the best so far for a dedicated playgroup of players who are playing regularly at their game yeah. club or as a little circle of friends and who are actually going to run a small campaign amongst themselves. Right. Yeah. Because That was exactly the feeling I got as well because it allows you to really focus on um, those two trees you can do your normal stuff with your armies you got a good selection of missions and, and things that all sorts of different types of armies can play right Tony yeah exactly um, I mean like I was feeling that if you've got you know, like four six players or whatever and you're all engaging with these upgrade trees 
you, there's going to be some real rivalries that build up as you see, you know, your enemies' psychers, you know, advance in their levels yeah. and progress and gain these abilities and how they're pushing for the missions that are going to reward that. Or you yourself are trying to upgrade and enhance your vehicles and your enemies know that they're going to just struggle with that land raider as it gets bigger and better. <laughs> or, you know, dealing with the, you know, your Gorkonaut as it gets yeah. more fancy gubbins. Um, and I think this was kind of a similar point that we made last episode about the Chariot on a Flame campaign that there were some real mechanics in there for encouraging grudges and rivalries and really getting to see the development of like the characters and really building into yeah. the hero hammer aspect. So if you imagine that you're playing with upgrade trees for specific vehicles and psychers, in addition to the fact that you'd be playing a campaign where you're picking faction-based warzone assets and you're marking off your heroic deeds and earning your legendary titles and even inflicting insult and injuries on your enemies um corrupted mind psychers it's gonna create a real in-depth unique narrative for those players playing as a player group yeah what which i think thi- will, will be amazing for those players yeah one of the things i quite uh sort of like and look forward to in crusade is the moment when someone rocks up with a character who's or a vehicle or whatever that's got a bunch of upgrades that you don't know what it does because it's sort of like a weird combination of different rules from different books um uh which in a, like a match play game you'd be like oh i don't know about this i'm gonna get caught out in in a, a sort of a narrative game it's a lot more more fun to see these crazy characters turn up and sort of do weird weird stuff that you'd never expect yeah 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 and i I think that would be like perfect to see in you know like say you you play a group of four six players because you're not going to be playing the same person over and over so you are going to get that essence of like oh last time i played that psyker it was three or four games ago and since then they've progressed twice they've gained some upgrades they've suffered they're currently suffering from an insult to injury that someone else inflicted on them (laughs) you know and uh, but they gained an ability from their heroic achievements and stuff like that and but you'll you'll sort of see that progression but at the same time be like oh they've uh, they've grown up a bit (laughs) since i last saw them yeah whereas i think that if you were trying to just run through the upgrade trees for your own sake for your force as you're playing pick-up-and-play games against people at your local store, I feel like it would be a little less rewarding because it's just kind of like, eh, I'm doing this thing with my guys, but it's not really meaningful to anyone else, just yourself, at which point I don't think there's much to be gained out of it than just using the standard crusade stuff, you know, relics, water traits, battle traits, that sort of stuff. Fair enough. I mean, I guess you could make that argument for the entirety of the Crusade system. I mean, yeah, but then the entirety of the Crusade system itself can be played by just virtue of having a 9th edition codex. Uh, not codex, yeah. army book. Like, core rules, all the rest of it. You don't need to buy these mission packs to get that. Yeah. Whereas this particular mission pack, I feel, really is going to be... Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it bears saying as well that... Um, Obviously, if you're wanting to follow these upgrade trees, 
you are wanting to play to this set of missions only. You yeah. know, you, you can't get much out of it if you go play some Plague Perch missions. So if you are wanting to do pick up and play and keep your range of Crusade missions available to you as 70 plus options across the free mission packs, then great. But if you want to really push for this character development, you're going to be restricted to only, you know, air quotes, <laughs> these 24 missions. Yeah. So it is kind of like an embarrassment of riches at that point. There's certainly enough here to have a really in-depth experience using just this mission pack. But I also yeah. feel like it's the first one to date which doesn't mix well with the others. I guess. I mean, I think we uh, we spoke last time about how there's a whole lot of there's a lot of content for Crusade and narrative stuff now, um, and you know we haven't been able to play it for the most part. <laughs> yes, this is also true. Which kind of skews our opinion somewhat, and and if it feels worth it or not. I mean, like for me now, I feel like I could rock up to a pick up and play a game of Crusade. Yep. And I could roll a D3 to determine which mission pack I want to play, and then roll a D24 <laughs> from that mission pack. Yep. Or alternatively, I could um, even just roll a D24 across all Strike Force missions from those books. You know yeah, so before or after your proposed opponent says, this guy's particularly dice obsessed, even for an orc player. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, like it's there is a ton of variety there now from these publications, yeah. um, and I think it's interesting that this one definitely has a slightly different direction to the previous two. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's worse for it. I just think it's different. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they can just make the same thing over and over again, can they? No, and obviously innovation is good, you know, and giving that variety is good. Um. So yeah, like it's it's funny how again I think this one is very much tied to its companion um, yeah. campaign book, um, and I do think to get the most out of them, you want to get both those publications, whichever they may be. And I am very much looking forward to Doctarius stuff. I think I think once we get through to our fun facts part two, I feel like we are ready to move on from Charidon. It feels <laughs> like we've been there a yeah. while now. I think the only thing we can do is is just as you you're both into that really in coming from different directions, we need to to get back on the tabletop a little bit more, get playing on these games. Oh yes, uh, it's great seeing certainly on the Facebook group, plenty of people are, are playing games. You've written some of yours up, Dan, uh, which has been great. We've seen other people doing that, and let's hopefully see more of them and, and keep building this view of, of how they actually play as we start playing more Crusade as things uh, hopefully continue to ease. Ideally. Yeah, so I, think I, that's, uh, I was going to say, on. I did have one more question that I remember after the last Crusade mission pack, I asked you um, if you could buy one, if you had to buy one Crusade additional content book, which would it be? And you said it was the Plague Purge mission pack. With this out as well, is that still your answer? I would say yes. Okay. If I had to pick just one of them, yep. I still think Plague Purge is probably the best pickup so far. Um, because for me, 
it is just the best expansion of the core concepts of Crusade. Um, you don't have a mission pack specific resource mechanic like um, investigation points or awakening points. Um, instead, you just get you get twelve additional universal stratagems that both players can use, um, paired off in two sets of six uh, yeah. stratagem sets across the missions. Um, yeah, and I I do think that Plague Purge is actually kind of the secret expansion to Crusade. Like it's kind of like Crusade two point oh a year later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about how much of a difference I think does. 12 universal strats would make to match play if ever they were considered for just added to the standard list of universal strats. Um, yeah. So I guess in terms of um, what armies you have and play with in Crusade, if you've got a 9th edition codex that has its own Crusade resource to be chasing, then I think Plague Purge is probably the best way to just expand on your mission sets. If you're playing with an 8th edition codex and you would like to have a resource chasing mechanic to feel like that you've got that extra something for your army to be doing, then maybe Beyond the Veil or Amidst the Ashes is the one to pick up because those will provide you with that additional Crusade framework which you don't currently have. Okay. Yeah, I, th I think Tony's answer is perfectly reasonable, makes sense. I do agree with him about um, uh, the other one being the. the Crusade 2.0 and a really good generic extension. But given that my wargaming context doesn't actually involve pickup games at all, if ever, it usually is with a limited group of people, maybe a dozen, maybe 18 different 40k players that, that come to our club, I think I would still go for Beyond the Veil. I like the Pariah Nexus environment. I like the investigation points. Uh, we got a couple of Necron players. So uh, given my context and what I'm most likely to be doing, that one makes more sense for me. So it's always worth looking mm -hmm. at the kind of games you expect to play, I think, when answering a question like that. Fair I mean, enough. Yeah, I have to say, I think the one caveat there as well is that if you are a Necron player and you're playing Crusade, I would advise getting Beyond the Veil. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of all of them so far, it does feel like the one that has the heaviest implied racial pick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do think that's... Uh, would be a nice way to play Necrons in Crusade if you sort of primarily pick from that mission pack. Yeah. But yeah, generally, I still think if you're going to pick up a single publication, I think Plague Purge is still my pick at this moment okay. in time. I feel like that's a, that's a useful little bit of discussion for our listeners and yeah. possibly me. <laughs> and if you disagree, post on the... Uh, Narrative Wargamer Facebook page and tell us what you think. How about that for a link? <laughs> nice. Professional. Now, speaking of professionals, let's segue into our very quick out-the-door community spotlight. Nice. So, Because uh, I don't want to skip it again because we ended up having to skip it last episode. So we'll literally have a quick five minutes of people we've seen doing cool stuff. And for me, that is an Instagram account that I recently followed called Grim Dark Light all one word because it's another one of these um, accounts that's been doing really exciting and cool sort of like miniature photography and setups but he's actually recently been portraying a short narrative um, sort of almost 
um, short story style with his Gene Stealer cults because he's had a series of posts that have a, a, a literal written story excerpt um, following one of the characters from his cult as the uh, Tyranids have been rising up and devouring this planet but he's done it all with his actual you know tabletop miniatures and set them up in all these wonderful photography shots and it's a uh, it's brilliant sort of following the story of this cult um locust is it the one that's like the, the psychic bodyguard uh I yeah i think so the locust yeah yeah cool. it's just really good i mean he's got a whole good bunch of you know other armies and um things on his account but that particular recent series of stuff has just been really inspiring to follow because it's funny when you follow someone on like one of these social platforms and you look forward to every time you see them post something next <laughs> because you want to see yeah. the progression of what they're currently doing rather than just getting absorbing what they do via osmosis when you happen to see their posts amongst everyone else's is one of the ones I'm actually looking forward to seeing what he puts up next yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, at Grim Dark Light, all one word. Go check him out. All right. And, uh, how about yourself, Dan? Uh, okay, so uh, I would like to promote uh, Forster's Foundry, which is a uh, a site that uh, does three D printing. Um, the the Forsters are uh, some some acquaintances of mine uh, and they they gave me a few models to uh, to look at and paint up from their uh, fresh off the printer uh, which was uh, quite cool I got to uh, see how they how they look with all the all the struts the supports and uh, remove all that which was surprisingly easy uh, so uh, I guess that's a that's a, a good thing Um they they're currently selling a bunch of the um I don't know if you know the the lunar auxilia models which are a kind of like renegade version of the the forge old solar auxilia auxilia um that was a kickstarter a while back that um they obviously bought the rights to print and sell the models which they are doing uh, they will also print a whole load of other stuff basically if you've got a uh, an STL file or whatever to print, they'll print it for you. Uh, and they, they in addition, have a uh, a painting service as well, so you can get it printed and painted and then sent to you. So uh, that's nice. It, yeah, it's, it's good. I've seen their site. It's really nice uh, stuff. On the particular, those uh, lunar auxiliary guard, they do look um, they do look the bee's knees. Yeah, I I got a few of them and and painted them up in my death guard colors uh, which is quite cool um yeah so that's forstersfoundry.co.uk uh forster is spelt f-o-r-s-t-e-r-s very nice super and for me i uh, i'm back to instagram again <laughs> as you are tony and uh one, one, I did, another one of my friends I've mentioned a couple of times he's not been on the podcast, but um, Lewis from Elmo Miniatures, E L M O Miniatures, uh, on Instagram. Uh, Lewis has got a little, uh, he's got a day job, but he's got a side gig as a uh, custom painter. But um, that means that the, the, 
quality of the, the miniatures that he posts up on his stream is really inspiring. And just like Tony said, I'm always um, excited to see what he's been painting next because it, you'll be following through a commission and, and then he'll be painting something random of his own. And uh, you know it's an army that is about to destroy you with a club. Who's <laughs> <laughs> painting? So there's some very, very nice pictures of his, his Titan army. Armages and a couple of really well painted Titans that, that look really fantastic on Instagram. And I was less impressed with when they tabled me on turn two. <laughs> Uh, but really, really look forward to seeing Lewis's uh, posts in his feed. It's Elmore Miniatures on Instagram. Nice. I'll check that one out myself. So, yeah. Um, I think that's about everything for tonight, then. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, hopefully, this will be one of our last pieces of coverage on Warzone Charadon. And uh, we might be able to gain a small snippet of a couple of episodes or some casual conversations, which I know we're due to do another one soon. <laughs> we will we will get another one out to the patrons as soon as we can. Um, and then it'll be kicking off, no doubt, into Warzone Octarius or the next. Hurrah. Sounds great. I mean, there's already a small pileup of uh, flashpoints starting to amass for it. <laughs> um, so, and we've got an increasing backlog of on-crusade segments to do. Yeah, there's a few of them. <laughs> Just a few. Um, I think what I might start doing is um, doing a back-to-back episode where the, all the episode is is we talk about two factions. And yeah, like it works. Yeah, might be able to make a dent in it. <laughs> so yes, um, thanks again for joining me tonight, guys. No problem. All right. Thank you very much. And until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play Pokemon games.